0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello, and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. It's episode 49, and this week we have a special tribute to one of the legends of the wine world, Stephen Spurrier, who passed away a year ago this week. Celebrated for the judgment of Paris, his contribution to wine and art went well beyond that famous day in the French capital. We'll talk to a man who knew him as well as anyone, uh, Adam Lechmere of Club Enologique. Plus, as always, we'll have your recommendations for medal-winning wines from the IWSC, a competition Stephen was involved with latterly as a senior judge uh, towards the end of his life.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
0: A year ago this week, the UK wine trade lost one of its leading lights. Stephen Spurrier was more than just an immaculately dressed English gentleman. However, his influence went far further than the shores. And his appreciation of wine extended well beyond the boundaries of the time. Born into a well-to-do family, he discovered a taste for wine at the age of 13 with a 1908 Coburn's port. But he was also celebrated for his love and knowledge of art. The swinging 60s saw Stephen travel the world in a way that most people just didn't back then. Uh, He ran an eponymous wine shop in Paris, even importing English sparkling wine before anyone had really heard of it. Uh, But he's undoubtedly most famous for the Judgment of Paris, a tasting challenge between old and new worlds, in this case, California versus France, to celebrate the bicentennial of American independence. It's gone down in the annals of wine history and been depicted in oil paintings and even inspired a movie. Stephen Spurrier died in March last year, and this programme started shortly afterwards. So, we have never had the chance to celebrate his life until now, the anniversary of his passing. Adam Lechmere, a veteran wine writer, knew him well, uh, or as well as anyone did, and he wrote a beautiful obituary for Club Enologique at the time. And I'm delighted to say that he joins us now. Uh, Adam, welcome back to the drinking hour. Good morning. Thank you so much uh, for for coming on to to talk about Stephen. Um, Before we uh, look at his um, life uh, in a bit more detail, for the benefit of someone listening now who didn't really know very much about Stephen Spurrier, um, just give us um, a sense in broader brushstrokes of who he was and his influence.
1: I think, um, you know, in terms of his influence, I think one word would sum it up, and that is seismic, his influence on, on the, 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 the international wine world. Um, you've mentioned the judgment of Paris, and it really was that which, which made his name and brought him, you know, extraordinary fame, um, which actually went beyond wine as well. Um, it, was a, you know, it, it was an event that did really, really shake up the wine world. And it was reported as sort of, you know, it, it, this, is, this is, story is so well known as to be apocryphal, reported by George Tabor in, um, in Time magazine. It was actually on page 58, I think, or page 52 of Time magazine. The editors didn't think it was an important story at all. And indeed, the story only got out because George Tabor, you know, he was the only reporter there at the Paris, t- at the tasting that day. He was a friend of the Spurriers, a friend of Stephen and Bella, and they'd said, "Look, we're doing this. We're doing this little tasting for the for the bicentenary of uh, of the um, American Declaration of Independence. Why don't you come along?" And he was in two minds as to whether he'd go or not and decided he was walking down the Champs Elysees, decided it was a lovely day. Um, Why not just nip along to Stephen's tasting? And he wrote a report for Time magazine, which then um, got picked up by the other papers. And after a couple of days, you know, the the sort of importance of it was realised. And this, you know, this is what what Stephen's whole reputation um, rested on. Uh, And we know the story. American wines were chosen by French critics. And, uh, you know, seen as, 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 as better than their, their French counterparts. And this um, made Stephen immensely famous in California. Um, you know, you talk to the great winemakers of that era, people like Beau Barrett and Warren Winiarski, um, you know, the pioneers of Napa. And they were, they were absolutely cock-a-hoop when the news came through, you know. Um, because it was it's such a great story and uh, you know and stephen um you know th- throughout the world um became um very very well known throughout the wine world he was Um, In my obituary, I said, um, I was just rereading it, actually, I said he was welcome at literally any great estate in the world. And I I think that's absolutely true. Um, No winery anywhere in the world would have refused him entry. And most importantly, I think um, he was welcome at the great estates, but he was also welcome at the very, very smallest places. You know, he was interested in every type of wine. Um, everything interested him. He'd taste something from you know the tiniest little uh, mom and pop operation in, in, in Sonoma or in the south of France or in Croatia. He was he had a sort of um, a great generosity of spirit in that way, and I think that, um, went a, a, you know that that contributed a lot towards his popularity. He'd never refuse anything. He'd never refuse any wine.
0: Oh, which is a uh, really shines through in your uh, obituary as as well. Um, And it's um, it's a a, a wonderful quality. Um, Going back to his early life, he wasn't uh, aristocracy, but uh, I mentioned he was always immaculate. And he came from, I suppose you'd you'd say in, in very old fashioned terms, kind of good stock, I suppose, wouldn't you?
1: Yes, I mean, he was, he was just absolutely, in, in that way, he was a classic of his, uh, uh, of his kind, you know, of, of the, the English, you just call it the English upper classes, I think, more than anything else. I mean, they were a very, very wealthy family. And the family, the Spurrier family, went back to the mid-17th mid, mid century. He said that um, his, one of his ancestors was a church warden in, in the village where he grew up. Um, in 1648 or something so the family went back a long long way but they also um, were exceedingly um, successful uh, Lancashire manufacturers um, his, his great, 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 great um, uncle um, started a, um, had a lawnmower business. And he was obviously, a, you, know, a, you know, a man of, of, of great, um, of great skill and, and entrepreneur, entrepreneurial skill. And that um, business flourished. Um, then they moved into cars, into motor cars um, in the early 20th century. And that business went on to become British Leyland, which was the um, state car manufacturer um, until until the mid-70s. Um, so there was, there, was a, there was a hell of a lot of money in the family. And then his father started um, a... His, sorry, his grandfather started a sand and gravel business um, that was also extremely successful. And that, of course, um, was the origin of this... Vast sum that was settled on the two brothers, on Nick and Stephen, in their twenties. Nick was Stephen's older brother. Also, a really interesting guy, actually. Nick Spurrier was was a computer genius, and he um, he developed the um, the software for um, the first Decanter website. Uh, that we launched in, in 2000. He developed a, a software for a system called the uh, Decanter Fine Wine Tracker that was pretty revolutionary for, it, for its time. But anyway, um, the the two brothers, Nick and Stephen, had this this sum of £250,000 each settled on them in their early 20s. And as Stephen always said, 250 grand in... Uh, in the, 90, in the early 1960s, would be equivalent to about 5 million today. Um, so at the age of 21 or 22, he was made a very, very, very wealthy young man. Um, and we'll, we'll get into this. You probably want to, 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 to ask more about that. But it, it, as he always said, it unbalanced his life.
0: I do. But um, you mentioned something just before that, uh, that uh, I love your turn of phrase. You described Stephen's upbringing as privileged, moneyed and a trifle rackety. Uh, What do you mean?
1: Well, he, 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 he talked about this. He talked about this in his memoirs and also in, 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 in on the sort of many interviews we had. You know, his, 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 his father, I think, um, was, and I, I'm sort of, I'm making a bit of a supposition here. His father was a very disappointed man, I think, um, because I don't think that he had the sort of um, business um, acumen that his, his father had. Um, And and Stephen actually certainly didn't have a business acumen. But Stephen's father, you know, tried to get back into the pub. He had a publishing business and he tried to get back into that after the Second World War. But it didn't work out. He failed. Um, He ended up going back to work in the sand and gravel business for for his father, for Stephen's grandfather. And he always hated it. And so, um, and he always, and that's one of the reasons why he settled all that money on his on his two sons because he never wanted them to be disappointed as he was. Um, you know, he hated working for his father. And so there was that kind of, it, it, it possibly wasn't a, sort of that, that happy uh, a, a household in that way, even though I think he, he, he was very, very fond of his father. Um, and his mother was um, from, also from a very sort of aristocratic family, but she was, he had some. You know, so she, she used to sort of, you know, have poker nights, you know. And um, Stephen was born in Cambridge because his mother, heavily pregnant, was down on one of her poker weekends with her with her buddies in Cambridge, and um, she didn't she didn't want to go back to Derbyshire um, and, and sort of spoil her weekend, you know, even though she was about to have um, about to have a baby. And this this is all sort of what Stephen told me. You know, you never know how sort of true it all was, but. I think his mother was quite, probably quite, quite fast, um, as, as they used to say, um, of of women who who liked to sort of, you know, who, who liked to, um, you know, to party.
0: Oh, well, she sounds fabulous. Um, yeah, no, she us, does
1: actually. Yeah, yeah.
0: Tell us about that windfall then, because you you mentioned there that uh, Stephen's father was determined um, that his two sons were going to have a um, a form of financial independence and. Boy, that was some financial independence uh, because I think uh, uh, you mentioned that quarter of a million pounds, something like five million quid in today's money. Um, It was a a huge sum uh, to, to go the way of someone in his early 20s
1: at that time. Absolutely, yeah, and I think it's, it's this story I think is, is what makes, um, what made Stephen such a fascinating character because, you know, he, he was, he, you know if, if, if I'd been given 5 million quid when I was 21, I, I, you know, heaven knows what would have happened. But Stephen, um, you know, he always said, it, his phrase was, this, it completely unbalanced my life. But actually it didn't, you know, he was working for a wine merchant um, at the time, whose name I forget. Christopher's, that's right, Christopher's. Yeah. He, had a, um, he, had, he had an income of £50 pounds a, a month um, from his father, which was a very, very decent income for a young man about town in the, 19, in the 19, early 1960s. Then this windfall landed on him, um, and he could have immediately stopped work. He could have immediately done whatever he liked, but he carried on working for Christopher's. Um, he then went to work for another wine merchant, um, into which he sunk some money. Despite this windfall, despite this inheritance, he continued working um and i remember asking him about this and he was he was sort of almost um almost offended he said no no i was i was never a playboy you know um, even though he led this kind of extraordinary life. I mean, he could buy himself a, a sort of um, three-storey house in Fulham. You know, that wonderful story of, um, of uh, you know, he, he had all sorts of lodgers. I think, he, I think people just kind of saw him as a money tree, you know. He, he lost his fortune, most of his fortune, very quickly in, in about three years, you know. He said in, in, by 19... He, was, he got the windfall in 1964. By 1967, he said, in another wonderful phrase, most of it had been taken away from me. Because, you know, he started up nightclubs. He started up a nightclub in the Bahamas. He sunk the money into an absolutely dreadful film called Dolly Story, which you can find on YouTube, um, which is all about sort of uh, the swinging young ladies of the, of the London scene in the 60s. And uh, it's <laughs> quite hilarious. Um, and it shows the young Stephen as a young wine merchant. Um, wearing immaculate suits you know yeah he he he, he put money into everything i think he had, there are a lot of people kind of hanging around the house all the time and one of these wonderful stories is he came back one night and he said um this um a, a, a young a young black guy carrying a guitar got up and said hi i'm jimmy um and stephen said um you know hi jimmy oh i'm off to bed and um went off to bed and uh, the next morning, his, his, lodger said, um, his lodger said, did you enjoy meeting Jimi Hendrix last night? And uh, he, had, he had no idea who it was, you know. And so I think it was that kind of, I, it, was, it must have been an extraordinary time in that sort of London in the swinging 60s, etc. Um, and the way Stephen told the stories, you know, he, he ab- absolutely embodied that life, you know.
0: That wine merchant was Murray and Banbury, by the way, the one that he sunk his... Uh, money into according to uh, your uh, excellent um, uh, obituary uh, you also mentioned in, in that uh, piece uh, him uh, hanging out with the Hep Cats, and that's what you mean about this sort of this you paint this picture of this uh, very uh, suave cool guy hanging out with um, you know the sort of people who kind of um, uh, uh, personify that that kind of image of the swinging 60s
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, But but I think, you know, it's also crucial to say that, you know, he he, he didn't become a playboy, he carried on working. And another very, very important thing about this vast sum of money he had was that, you know, as a young wine merchant, um, and as somebody who wanted to get into wine, he, you know, with that money, he could travel, which is the essential thing that anybody who wants All of us in the wine world, we know that travel is absolutely vital. And so he, he, he was able to go and visit the wine regions. And he did this. He met Bella in um, his wife, um, you know, his, 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 his wife, Bella, um, who um, I saw the other day, who's running the, the Bride Valley Vineyard still. You know, he met her in 1968 and they, they spent, you know, they spent months and months just traveling. He had a Triumph Herald. An open-top triumph herald which he's changed for triumph vitesse um and he said he said oh, i had so much money i could have bought an e-type if i wanted but i didn't you know i didn't splash money about but he, he he spent his summers and and much of the year just traveling around the wine regions you know and that's where he gained this 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 encyclopedic knowledge you know and as well he had a, a very 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 acute brain a very sharp mind an excellent memory Um, um, which again is essential for for anybody interested in wine, as we all know. Mm. So all these sort of ingredients came together, really, to to, to make this sort of um, this sort of, uh, you know, in many ways, a very, very successful life. How
0: did he end up as an Englishman in Paris selling wine to
1: the French? That's a good question. I can't I don't know why why they eventually went to Paris. I think, you know, th- th- they could go anywhere. I think they they um, they just decided that they'd try out Paris for a bit, you know, and um, as a as a sort of, you know, as a as a as a in many ways, a wine center, you know, you know, good to get to easy to get to Bordeaux, to Burgundy, etc. And as the story goes, you know, one day he was they were living um, they were living on a, on a houseboat um, in Paris which I never saw pictures of, but I think was absolutely lovely. And just kind of living the life there. And one day he was walking down um, the Rue de la Madeleine um, with, with a friend. Um, you can imagine them in their sort of sharp suits, you know, probably with walking sticks, you know, walking along the cobbles. And they passed this dingy run-down wine shop called Carve de la Madeleine. And Stephen turned to his friend and said, no, that's just the sort of place I'd like to buy. Um, and his friend said, oh, let's go inside. Um, and uh, you know the rest is history he bought the shop um again you know um stephen always said um by his own admittance that he was a useless businessman and and in many respects he was because um he 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 never made that much money but he had an absolute instinct for for how um you know for how this wine shop should work you know and it had these vast sort of vats at the back full of van ordinaire that people would come with their bottles to to refill and he immediately cleared those out and he was one of the very first people to buy direct from vineyards. Um, so he spent his time um, buzzing around um, the vineyards of Bordeaux and Burgundy, buying up wine, you know, and selling it in the shop. He was one of the very, very first um, to um, sell English wine. In the nineteen early early 70s, um, he was selling wine from Hambledon Vineyard um, in in um, in southern England um and when the young queen and prince philip um came to france for i forget what celebration um stephen supplied the wine um for a dinner that they were at and he 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 supplied them um, english wine which um you know would have been eccentric 10 years ago but in the early 70s it was it was quite a move but uh yeah. And, and the Carve de la Madeleine was, was, was a very, very successful shop. And he ran all these sort of events. And, and then, you know, 1976 came along. He thought, why don't we do something to celebrate um, um, the bicentenary of the Declaration of Independence? And um, why don't we throw this tasting? And... The rest is history. That
0: was the judgment of Paris. So you, you mentioned this in uh, the introduction. So tell us a bit more about um, how it came about. And uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of there was obviously some serendipity there at play uh, with this uh, chap from Time magazine. Uh, but uh, just tell me what he was trying to do and uh, and, and how um, uh, and what happened in that uh, in that venue, in that room.
1: Right. Well, he um, what he was trying to do was simply, you know, as a, as a shopkeeper, you know, he thought um, Declaration of Independence, very, very important um, occasion, you know, and obviously a huge thing in France as well. He thought, why not just you know, one tasty, thought it was a good idea, um, and show American wines as well because he'd been to California a lot and he he'd been pretty impressed with the wines he was tasting from California, and so um, he he had you know he had a, a sort of good idea of which wines he'd show. He invited um, all the great French critics. So who was there then uh, for the Judgment of Paris? Who was doing that? The judging. Right. Well, the judging panel, um, it, it's, it's really impossible to, 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 to imagine a more august or eminent panel of French um, of, of French wine critics. This was the French wine establishment. Um, you had Raymond Oliver, um, who was owner and chef of the Grand Vivor restaurant, which is one of the, the, the temples of Paris cuisine um, in the in the 60s. Claude Dubois Milot, um, who was sales director of the food and wine Bible, Go Milot. Um, Odette Kahn. Um, who was editor of La Revue de Vins de France? Uh, Ober de Vilaine, who was uh, owner, still is owner, of um, the um, great Burgundy estate, um, Domaine de la Romani Conti. Pierre Tarry, um, owner of Chateau Giscourt in Bordeaux. Um, Christian Vannecke, um who um, was chef uh, owner of the restaurant Tour d'Argent. Uh, so a, a very, very eminent panel.
0: And uh, how many wines you know, were, were they tasting? How long did this um, event that is now so famous? How long did it last? Was it a, you know, just a couple of hours, like a sort of standard tasting that uh, your eye might go to in, in London, Adam?
1: Yeah, no, it was, it was it was it probably lasted about I sort of, think sort of, two and a half, three hours. There were um, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. There's there were sort of ten chardonnays and ten cabernets. They tasted them um I, I think they tasted the Chardonnays first, then they tasted the then they tasted the um the red wines. The the wines, um, you know, this this is again, this this is a, a very, very well-known story. Um in the overall results, um the the, the Chateau Montalena, 1973, um that came came first after the Chardonnays. Um Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, 1973. Um, came first after the Cabernet Sauvignons. The the, the 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 second wine, the second Chardonnay, was a was a, a Meuseau, Charme, um, nineteen seventy three. The second um, Cabernet was Chateau Mouton, um, nineteen seventy. Um, now you know w- w- one thing that Stephen always admitted was that uh, you know actually um, it, it wasn't um, a sort of statistically. Uh, it, it was st- statistically the, the, the wines coming first or second or third didn't mean a thing because all Stephen did was he added up all the critic scores and divided by the number of critics there um, and apparently people who understand statistics say that that is not. Um, a proper way of uh, working things out, so actually you know if you look at it in in pure statistical sense you know the, the montelena and the stag deep actually didn 't come first um, because you have to properly weight these things in some way i don 't know so yeah it would have, it would have been probably about two or three hours and then they had lunch you know one of the really sort of important things about the tasting was that um, it was it was um, not a particularly it didn't have a particularly pleasant ending for anybody um, when Stephen unveiled the results you know the critics um, obviously were, were absolutely mortified um, because it made them look really stupid um, mm-hmm. because um, you know they, they had you know one of you know as all of us in, in, in wine know that it's always very embarrassing when you hold yourself up as an expert and you can't recognize you know you can't tell the difference between a French and an American wine and, and, you know, you had the editor um, of Revue de Van de France, one of the most important wine critics in, in the world, really, thought she was tasting a French wine when she was tasting an American wine. And so she, Odette Kahn, demanded her notes back from Stephen. She, she went immediately went and, and started, um, you know, trying to um, rubbish the results, saying, that the, saying the results were cooked. And Stephen refused to give her her notes back, said, no, madam, these notes are now mine. And, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it made Stephen very very unpopular in france for a bit you know as he said um you know um various people various chateau owners wouldn't speak to him uh, Aubert de vilaine um um told him that he'd spat in the soup and Gosh. Uh, you know it, 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 it was it was it was it was pretty unpleasant i think for him um uh, you know he, he obviously you know he obviously regained um his his popularity very very quickly um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that the, 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 the French, um, you know, the French establishment was, was, was you know, left very much with, with egg on its face, really.
0: Yes. I mean, it, it rather follows, doesn't it, that if he was um, incredibly famous and popular in California as a result of this, um, then uh, it was highly likely that the reverse was going to be true um, within uh, France at, at the time, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, S- S- Stephen Stephen saying to me, um, "This is a piece I wrote some time ago. I said the French wine establishment was outraged, and uh, that's right. Yes, yeah, Stephen C- Stephen said that um, he found out later." Um, that um, Lalu Bees-Leroy, um, who, you know, one, one of the um, very, very, very eminent um, um, owners of Burgundy, she, she was the co-owner of Domaine de la Romanee conti at the time with Aubert de Villaine, And when he got back to Burgundy, um, he was given a really hard time by her, you know? you know. And people rang him up and abused him on the phone. People rang Stephen up and abused him on the phone. Um, the, um, the, you know, the tasters of Pierre, Pierre Tarry, um, um, the owner of Chateau Giscourt was asked to resign. He was mayor of Bordeaux, uh, mayor of Margaux, Um, and he was asked to resign from that post for what he'd done in Paris. You know, it's, it's quite, quite serious stuff. You know, it's not, um, you know, yeah. no, 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 nobody died as they say, but, uh, you know, reputations were, 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 were badly damaged.
0: Uh, yes but but not uh, stevens ultimately because it was such a uh, exactly. a, a moment yeah. Yeah, in, exactly. in history a moment in, in time yes. and uh, this inspired a movie um and uh, by all accounts sadly it, it's not a very good movie i don't think
1: ah oh, this is bottle shock yes well no actually bottle shock was absolutely panned um, and um, the sort of received wisdom in the wine world is that it's a dreadful film. Actually, it's far, far better than a lot of people think. It's actually, it's actually pretty amusing. It's got Alan Rickman in it, who's absolutely wonderful, um, as Stephen. Play, he he, he plays, this, uh, plays him up as this ridiculous kind of effete sort of wine snob, you know. But I spoke to Beau Barrett the other day, um, and I was asking him about... Beau Barrett was the, the owner of... Uh, still is the owner of um, Montalena, and he was a young guy then. He was in his 20s, um, and his dad... Um, was was uh, Jim Barrett was that was the formidable owner um, of Montelena. But Bo, um, I was asking him about Bottle Shock, um, he was saying it's just a bit of fun, you know, He, he because his portrayal was as, was, as, was as a sort of ludicrous kind of surfer dude, you know, which he wasn't at all. He happened to be sort of blonde and tall and handsome. Um, but he was, he, was, he was quite a serious young guy, but he was portrayed in the film as this ludicrous surfer dude. But actually the film very entertaining, in fact. It's actually a lot better. I mean, you know, the most famous wine film in the world, obviously, is Sideways, which everybody, you know, goes on about how wonderful it is. If you watch that film again, it's dated very, very, very badly. It hasn't aged well at all. I think Bottle Shock is probably a better, will turn out to be a better film than Sideways, funnily enough. Right. Anyway, I okay. digress.
0: Well, no, I need to watch it. That's, uh, that, that's, uh, I should put that on my. Yeah. Uh, my list. So Stephen came back uh, after the judgment. He's um, a very famous man in the wine world now. Um, uh, he came back from Paris uh, to London, uh, but this was without the fortune that he, he once enjoyed. He, he, uh, reading your obituary, uh, when uh, Stephen and Bella came back to London, um, they really kind of had to almost start again.
1: Yeah, I mean, Stephen, yes, he, he liked to say he was broke. I don't think he was broke. I think he still had sort of a little bit sort of sorted away, you know. But they had an absolutely dreadful experience in New York. Um, that um, I, I think their experience in New, New York was so bad that um, it, it, he really wouldn't, didn't want to talk about it, actually. Um, but um, because they, they had Carve de la Madeleine and then they had the Academy du Vin, which was the, the, the um, educational, um, you know, arm of Carve de la Madeleine, which was run by Patricia Gallagher, Stephen's friend. Um, that was very successful in Paris. Um, in the way of these things, Stephen thought, if it works in Paris, why would why it work in New York? They opened up a branch in New York that failed, um, failed dismally. Um, and Stephen, Stephen said all he'd say was that, uh, it, you know, it, they had a very, very, very bad time in New York, a very bad year. He said neither of them had been back there since. Bella. Um, Bella couldn't even, Bella never went back to New York. Hated hated the mention of it, and that's then. That's when they they sold the wine shop and came back to to, to London. That's when Stephen said he was broke. You know, he, he still had his name. Obviously, he still had his name, um, and he got a job working for um, the working as the head of wine at Harrods. Um, working for Mohammed Al-Fayed, um, who was then owner of, of Harrods. Um, he, he fell out with him and then um, he was sort of looking about him. He met, in the mid-90s this was, um, he met Sarah Kemp, um, then publishing director of Decanter, at a lunch. And they were chatting away and she said, oh, why don't you come and work for us? Come and do a column for us. And that's, um, you know, he said that changed his life, basically. Um, because once again, he was back into the kind of mainstream, sort of dynamic mainstream of of of, uh, of of the London wine world and Decanter in the mid nineties was a magazine that was um, absolutely powering on on all cylinders. You know, um, was 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 going very very far very fast indeed. And then you know um, in you know two thousand and four Stephen um, finally persuaded Sarah Kemp to start um, an awards um, and that was the Decanter World Wine Awards, which became the most important wine competition. Um, and, and held its position as the world wine competition for many years so so yes um but you know Stephen, he said he was broke but he had this absolutely gorgeous flat in hammersmith uh that um, i went to several times that was one of those lovely lovely 1930s um purpose mansion purpose-built mansion flats with Great big, great big rooms and long corridors, and you know, um, servants' quarters at the back, and that was filled with art and filled with sculptures. Um, and they had also Lytton Cheney in Dorset, um, which is which is their their which is Bella's home now. So so yes, he, he, he was he was broke, um, probably by his standards.
0: <laughs> right. And at Decanter, because, of course, you uh, worked there uh, for many years yourself, that, that's where you got to know uh, Stephen, I assume, Adam.
1: Yes, so absolutely. I met him um, first, I remember, at the Decanter Fine Wine Encounter in 1999, which was one of the first Decanter Fine Wine Encounters, which is, you know, the, 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 the big wine show um, in the Landmark Hotel in Marylebone, you know, where, which, was, which was always a very, very sort of, a, always quite, quite a fun event, actually. Um, that's where I met him first and, and then continued to sort of work with him I was editing decanter.com, so he wrote a lot for us, um, and I used to see him, oh, all the time, you know, and then um, I you know, went down to, it took my family, my, my children were very small then, you know, uh, about 15, 18 years ago or so, went down to stay with him in, um, in, um, in Lytton Cheney at the house in Lytton He went down and spent the weekend with them, which was, which was really nice, yeah. You know, I think at the beginning you said I, I, I knew him as, as well as anybody would know him. I, I he, he was actually, a, he was a very, I was very fond of him, um, but I wouldn't say we were, we weren't sort of in any way sort of buddies or pals, you know, uh, we, we weren't, um, you wouldn't say we were in any way close, you know, but... Uh, I met him a few
0: times. uh, Obviously, I've um, been in this uh, world of of wine uh, less time than you by some margin. But um, I met him a few times. I always found him extremely charming, uh, perhaps slightly distant. um, But uh, he, he always appeared very interested in what other people thought of the wines in front of them at that point. He wasn't someone I felt anyway, who was telling me, what he thought of that wine, even though I'd have been very interested in that. He was curious as to what I thought of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, he 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 did have. I mean, I think somebody said he had a he had a generosity of spirit. He was a um you know he 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 yes he he he, he wasn't the kind of person and he he didn't disdain any wine. I mean, there are lots of there was another critic of equal eminence who died recently. Um, who, uh, well, I don't say who it is, my, my, Michael Broadbent. I remember once um, giving Michael Broadbent a, um, a, a wine, um, a California wine, that that's, um, uh, he just kind of took a little sip and went, uh, not my sort of thing, I'm afraid, and that was it, end of conversation. Now, Stephen would never have done that. Stephen would have tasted the wine and thought about it. Um, that, that was the thing, you know, it, he, he would never turn down a wine that interested him, and he was interested in absolutely everything. And, and yeah, he, he, he liked to know what people thought as well.
0: And that uh, comes uh, through very strongly in uh, your obituary for Club Inologic whether you talk about uh, those who worked with him in uh, judging wines, and he, of course, became a a consultant at the end of his life to the IWSC, uh, sponsors of this uh, this programme. He he appeared to have um, a very um, open mind. Um, He didn't really care where the wine came from so long as it was good.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, and I think that's what that's what endeared people to him. You know, Um, I remember being at a tasting once. I was standing, I was tasting alongside him at um, at a a big Italian tasting in London years ago. And uh, no, rather it wasn't Italian. It wasn't an Italian tasting. There was a, a, a Sangiovese, and I forget where it was from. Um, it said, but it wasn't an Italian Sangiovese and I remember him sort of tasting it and going, ah, oh, that's one of the most remarkable, remarkable, expressions of Sangiovese I've ever tasted. And, and, and the winemaker behind the table was obviously absolutely delighted. Um, and I think, I, d- I don't think it was that brilliant a wine. I think that was just Stephen's sort of, you know, I, I think he's one of these people who, um, you know, he, 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 he wouldn't, he wouldn't put, he wouldn't put down a wine if he didn't like it in front of the winemaker. You know, there's a certain kind of um, he, he didn't he didn't like to disappoint anybody, I don't think.
0: You mentioned uh, the encyclopedic knowledge of wine as well and the importance of a good memory. Um, and um, he, he really um, you know he, he's just renowned for everything that he had stored away. He, his 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 head was like a sort of very, very impressive filing cabinet by the sounds of it.
1: Yeah yes I think he, he yes he was he was a very intelligent man I mean he was uh, um uh, you know uh, he had this encyclopedic knowledge as you say um, and and, uh, and he could could always remember vintages and always remember where he'd tasted something and he could make those crucial connections, you know, so he could, um, which again is very, very important in a wine critic, um, which is to be able to say, you know, this wine um, reminds me of, um, you know, this particular region or this, this wine is reminiscent of another region. This, you know, he might be tasting a, a, a California Chardonnay um, and it would remind him of a certain, um, a certain Burgundy, for example, from a certain vintage. Um, and he'd always make those connections. And he he actually, one of the things that he always said was that um, he didn't particularly like, um, he didn't particularly value um, blind tasting um, because he said that, you know, you always need to know a wine's provenance and, you know, the the stable it comes from in order to be able to accurately criticise it. Um, And if you're tasting it blind, then you don't really... um, you know, you, you can only make certain judgments about what's what's in the glass in front of you. Um, and you can't, for example, you know, if you're tasting a Bordeaux blind, um, you know, you need to know the vintage uh, in order to know how the wine is evolving, for example. So uh, mm. it's, it's quite interesting in that way. Um, but, but again, um, talking about just when we talk about encyclopedic knowledge, the other crucial thing about Stephen, I think one of the things that made him most interesting, was that he was interested in so much more than wine. Um, you know, his, his, art, his art collection was, was, was stupendous. And he, he patronised, um, you know, modern sculptors. Um, and he, he, was, he, he had a, a deep and knowledgeable appreciation of art. Um, that, um, and, and, and he had this wonderful, at the end of his life, he was just, just, um, putting together the sculpture garden at Lytton Cheney. It was absolutely wonderful, you know, um, and anybody should go down there and visit. Um, and, uh, you know, had a wonderful collection of art on his walls. He had Goya's. He had, you know, the first, the first art he bought was a Stubbs engraving, um, that he bought for three and six or something in the Portobello Road. That's, that was on his landing at Lytton Cheney. Um, so, so that's another facet of his, of, his, of his character that I think is important to, to talk about.
0: And I remember uh, chatting to him at a Liberty Wines tasting um, two or three years ago, uh, where he was proudly showing off his uh, Bride Valley uh, sparkling wines. Um, he, he ended up uh, presumably, um, you know, realising a, um, a, a dream, I guess, to, to, to make his own wines in England.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, uh, he had, um, uh, you know, he, he had a, a, a lots of, of of land down there at Litton Cheney, um, and he had this. Um, I remember, um, you know, he took me round um, the, the this wonderful kind of natural bowl of land um, in, 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 that, that looks down over the sea. The house is is is, is, is um, you know a mile or so from the sea, and this this wonderful natural south facing sort of sort of amphitheatre, that you look at it and, and it's just absolutely perfect for a vineyard, um, which which indeed, you know, is, is the case. You know, his, the wine is very, very good. And, um, no, I think it made him very, very happy. I remember him saying that, um, um, you know, as, as, he, as he sort of went into retirement, um, he had the vineyard, he had his art, he had the sculpture garden that he was putting together um, and, you know, the art collection that he was curating. And he also had a job with the Academy du Van Library, um, that's the new publishing imprint, um, also part of IWSC. And he was consulting for that. And he said, um, and I said, yeah, you seem you seem pretty, pretty complete, Stephen. You know, and he said uh, he said, yes, this is this is my idea of the, of, of, of the perfect life for a gentleman, you know, art, literature, writing, wine. Um, it, so it's all come together for him, really.
0: Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Uh, thank you very much, Adam. It's, uh, as I said, a, a beautiful um, obituary that uh, you wrote uh, last year uh, and also um, uh, uh, probably about a, a year previously. I, I think you'd visited him and uh, uh, written about his, his love of art for Club Eno Logic as well. And I would uh, recommend anyone uh, listening uh, read that too. Um, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on The Drinking Hour to uh, remember Stephen Spurrier.
1: Not at all. Thank you very much, David. I I, I enjoyed it. The Drinking Hour on Food
0: FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time to celebrate some achievements of a different kind, uh, though very much of the sort Stephen would have approved of. Uh, medal winners at the IWSC. Uh, firstly, a gold for a hugely underrated class of sparkling wine that I personally absolutely adore, Lambrusco. This one is from Medici Ermete, Concerto Lambrusco Dry from Salamino. Uh, this is Lambrusco as it should taste, really is. Founded in 1890, Medici and Mete were some of the first to export overseas. Uh, the market uh, famously uh, collapsed in the late 1980s as quality decreased and became synonymous with sweet, sugary offerings. Um, the best Lambrusco is, in my opinion, absolutely uh, the dry variety, which is uh, the kind enjoyed uh, in this uh, part of uh, Italy uh, around um, Bologna uh, and that, uh, that region. Uh, The family decided to relaunch the brand, uh, reducing yields by 35% below the accepted yields. um, And uh, the grapes are organically grown. And here are the results. gold. The judges said the nose has ripe black cherry and red fruit flavours with a lively freshness on the palate. Good fruit and very attractive balance. A fun wine designed to accompany food, dry with a clean finish. To South Africa next, and another gold medal winner from a brilliant winery, uh, Bouchard Finlayson. This is Galpin Peak Pinot Noir 2019, and awarding their golden gong, the judges, among them three masters of wine, uh, John Hoskins, uh, Joe Locke and Beth Pierce, uh, said this, a light red fruit character comes through on the nose before the palate introduces perfectly ripened fruit notes backed by cherry cola spice. The oak integration is sublime and the finish lengthy. This is an outstanding wine showcasing perfect harmony. I've had that wine and uh, it is absolutely well worth that gold medal, um, I have to say. Next, it's to France and a silver medal winning Syrah, a Caves Saint-Desirah from the Northern Rhone, uh, awarding their medal. The judges said of this, Succulent aromas of smoked meat, black olives, and summer herbs, dignified on the palate with a gorgeous concentration of dark fruit, lavender, coffee, and chocolate, superbly structured with memorable length. Next, let's uh, cross the world to Chile, uh, Marque de Casa Concha Chardonnay 2020. From the pioneering winery Concha y Toro, who produced uh, vast amounts of wine, but seemed to have an incredible knack for consistency and quality. Uh, This was a bronze medal winner. The judges said uh, a bright and vibrant citrus nose with creamy peach and pineapple flavours in a fresh, easy drinking, attractive style. And finally, uh, to Australia to round off with uh, a gold medal winner with a whopping 96 points. Uh, De Bortoli, show liqueur, muscat non vintage. The judges said a wholesome nose full of rich, dark spice, sun dried figs, and roasted coffee. A thick and intense palate full of dry fruits, sticky toffee, and notes of burnt orange peel and chocolate. Very attractive and elegant with full on alcohol. What a way to uh, round things off. Uh, That's it for another episode of the Drinking Hour. Uh, my thanks to Adam for that uh, fitting and also fascinating tribute to Stephen Spurrier. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Food FM Radio. And you can follow me if you so desire. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye.
1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening
0: to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode. In association with the International
1: Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.